Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Brian Dennehy. He's one of the founders of Fund Expert. Welcome to the show, Brian. Tell us a bit about yourself and how you got into the markets. Um, yeah, I was, uh, well, there are two businesses. So if I go with the old one first, it's easier. Dennehy Weller & Co. was set up in 1987, two months before the crash. So great timing. Uh, and, and of course, I, I was extraordinarily young then. Of course, that's obvious. And um, um, and and we took over a small business where a chap was retiring, and it was all ethical investing. Believe it or not, really, that was way that, ahead that, of the that, curve. That was ahead of the curve. It was well ahead of the curve, and funnily enough, I've been knocking ethical investing ever since. <laughs> and 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 I've convinced uh, various men of the cloth and, <laughs> and all sorts of others that actually it's a complete waste of everyone's time and certainly a waste of their money. Oh well, we have to um, come back to that point. But yes, yeah, yes, yeah, and 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 gets worse all the time. Anyway, so that was 1987. So that's um, you know, so it, it's now what we call a wealth management business. It's eyeball to eyeball advice. That's it, really. And um, so that was 87. And then in 2013, uh, based, we were always research biased, always. And then um, in 2013, we set up Fund Expert, which was basically um, it, it, the research was all packaged up in there. And, and people subscribed to that um, and, and basically pay for that research. So, so this. It, so, what does this do? This analyzes all the other funds and suggests. Yeah, exactly. And you, yeah. then you decide which one from that research, basically. Yeah, these are. It primarily goes to um, uh, self-directed investors, but also um, a number of advisors snuck in, although it's not specifically um, marketed to them. And it gives them the research, which enables them to make better investment choices. Because, frankly. Um, you know the, the the research around our industry is shocking, including via some big global names, and then of course we also know separately that the track record of the fund management industry in providing um, outperformance is also shocking. And uh, so all in all, it seemed to me that there was a huge gap in the market to provide something better to self-directed investors. And that's not putting me on a pedestal. I mean, the only reason we set it up at all was because everything else, mostly everything else we thought was was so shocking. So when you say the research is, was shocking, do you mean the research of other funds or do you mean all the funds. actual of funds? All funds generally. I mean, the whole thing about rating funds, I mean, it's so garbage. It's garbage. It was and it remains garbage. And that's why one of the main reasons why we've had so many problems with Woodford in the last year. Uh, we don't need to mention names. Um, there wasn't really research in, in in a proper sense taking place at all, but people were putting ratings on things like Woodford funds, um, and there was no rational reason for doing that. But to be fair, Brian, I mean, you, you touched on a much wider point that yeah. you, I mean, you obviously we're talking now about the the, the fund research world, but there's research or research theoretically conducted by the likes of the credit rating agencies yeah. and there's research issued by you know supposedly credible research um, put out by by investment banks the whole you know the whole of the financial services industry is just drowning in crap research isn't it 
Yeah, and that hasn't and that hasn't changed. And interestingly, I know Tim said at the end we come back to interesting books. And there's one that and I and I've got some interesting stuff in there which could take an hour or two in its own right. <laughs> but there's one there's one brilliant book written in 1912. I like digging up these old books. And anyone can access this. It's um, Psychology of the Stock Market, written by a guy called uh, Steddon, um, if my memory. I always get his surname wrong. Yes, Selden, sorry, S-E-L-D-E-N, Psychology of the Stock Market, 1912. And you can download it online because it's one of those where no one owns the rights to it anymore. Oh, right. But it's absolutely brilliant because the stuff that he's saying is exactly what we're all still saying. Yes. It hasn't changed. Nothing's changed change. at all, yeah. including that the, the media have a lot to say and they're invariably always wrong, which I know Tim's going to love it. He'll be downloading it as we speak. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Brilliant book. And, and, and that's the other thing about investing is that so many people think, and so many really, really, really clever people, and the, the industry it, uh, throughout the developed world is full of so many really clever people. And um, re- that what they, they don't realise that actually everything's already been learned. Uh, they just need to read more. Yes. So there's nothing new under the sun, basically. Is the, the there, yeah. I know. I know that's the saying, and it sounds it well, sounds very true. Clear, but, but actually, once you do start reading this stuff, so don't. If someone says that to you, don't don't accept that it's true. Go away and read this stuff, and then you think, oh yeah, okay, they're right. So does that take us up to date with where you are? So your 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 fund oh, research. Oh yes, sorry, business. I forgot the original yeah. question. <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that. It's yeah. Okay. Yes, yeah, it brings up to date where where I am. Yeah. And so, t- tell us about the ethical investing bit because that's that's fascinating that you you were sort of so ahead of the curve and then yeah. found that actually you were rejecting it and still are today. Yeah. The 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 degree of under, I mean, yeah, the underperformance generally is is shocking of funds. Um, the degree of um, underperformance, if you solely select ethical funds, is beyond shocking. Beyond shocking, it costs you fortunes. So every year when there's Ethical Investing Week, or I think they've now renamed it something else, you know, let's be nice to each other and plant trees with or something. ESG, I think, is what they call it. Was that was that this century? Okay, they change it every so often, don't they? Anyway, so they have that every year, and I always produce our research just just ahead of that week, which goes back and analyzes all the uh, ethical investing funds against indices, and then also plants some more rational bases for for selecting funds on top of that. So people can just see that the extraordinary losses they're making by selecting uh, ethical or ESG funds. And in all seriousness, I one of our one of our ethical clients, and he, he was a man of the cloth, he um, what he found was he started making so much more money by not being in ethical funds that he genuinely was then able to take a chunk of the profits off and and and, and put a new roof on the church. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think I think to be honest, that says it all. I, I think that just sums up the the nature, or the more specifically, the subjective nature of this stuff. The problem I have with so-called socially responsible investing, which in, incorporates partly, you know, the, the whole environmental greenwash that's now sort of swilling around, is it's entirely subjective. It's, it, f- to my mind, it's faddish. It's virtue signalling. There's no objectivity or hard science to it. It's just what's what's currently in vogue and fashionable with the the same people who've tried to keep us in the European Union for the last three and a half years. 
Yeah, and and the, and the point that we seriously make in the note we produce every year is not just about putting a new roof on the church, but if you really want to, you're not you're not going to change the world by uh, investing in ESG funds. Mm. But you might be able to, if you make excess profits, then take some of those excess profits and give it to one of those causes that you really want to help. And one of those might be a sort of a radical, let's go and bash down doors and smash windows type of. Well, if that's if that's your thing, then great. But you're going to be much more effective by making excess profits and giving it to the guys to go and smash down more windows, mm. break down more doors. It reminds me of the there was a BBC short documentary about it was called Million Dollar Trader, I think. And they had various people from various backgrounds um, competing to be the best trader, if you like. And I remember one guy was an ethical trader and he was looking through the markets and saying, oh, I'm not going to trade big oil. I'm not going to trade this. I'm not going to trade that. And it just struck me as just completely pointless. I mean, you're either in the game or you're not. And I, I know that the the sentiments of what he was trying to do was 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 good in some ways, but it's just pointless. If you're if you're there to make money, then yeah. make money. And then if you like, you say with that money and those profits, you can you can do something else. But it, that's the game of trading. It's no point not yeah. picking the best outperforming stock for just because you, you, you feel ethically, uh, you know, yeah. that, that there's something wrong with it. It is there to I be... I mean, it, it, it's surely the case... Sorry to, to cut in, no, uh, it's fine. Paul. It's sure, surely the case that f- to, to maximise your potential returns, you have to have the broadest opportunity set possible. And so, I mean, I don't know, let's say BP, for example, is maybe, I don't know, giving a dividend yield of 6%. That 6% looks pretty good these days relative to the, the zero you can earn in the bank and the zero or negative... No yield you can get from from government bonds. So just to sort of ignore that or take it off the table because it doesn't match it doesn't match your sort of tick box criteria seems to be completely absurd. Yeah, but you know what? That's interesting. But then once you open up your mind to those opportunities, there then might become good reasons to buy a stock that looks ethical um, because you know the trend is going in that direction. So mm. let me explain what I'm saying. What I'm thinking there, you've got SSE, so uh, Scottish and Southern Energy, for example, yep. which is kind of converting itself into a into a green company. And then you've got all, lots of institutions who are in BP and Shell, and they're all getting really nervous about those nasty people coming and smashing down the front door mm. and so on, uh, because they're invested into dirty energy. Uh, well, the yield on SSE is over 6% as well. So um, it seems to me the opportunity is is there, for example, in SSE as, as that green company. If that's what people want to move towards and we're naturally moving towards that anyway because it probably makes sense on decades-long views. Then. So, you know, you can play the ethical game to your advantage too. You know, so you buy SSE because it's sort of green and ethical and sensible and it's, uh, and it's got a nice chunky yield. And as a result of the election result the other day it's also now not going to be nationalized which is why it went up 10 percent yeah that so the, the argument basically that there's no reason why you shouldn't invest in something that's no ethical just have an open mind yes exactly just have an open mind that's i think all. i mean yeah. i think there's a there's a lot there's a lot here that's also in connection with say with the you know the the, the views around tax the idea that everyone should pay the maximum amount of tax possible as if we're all kind of milch cows that just are designed to be you know profit extraction engines on behalf of the government there is a superb quote and i think it came across this comparatively recently i hadn't heard it um until probably about a, a 10 years ago it's a quote from and i'm sure you'll know this one brian it's from um, lord clyde 
And he gave a famous ruling in the case of Ayrshire and Pullman Motor Services versus Inland Revenue as far back as 1929. He said, no man in the country is under the smallest obligation, moral or other, so to arrange his legal relations to his business or property is to enable the Inland Revenue to put the largest possible shovel in his stores. The Inland Revenue is not slow, and quite rightly, to take every advantage which is open to it under the taxing statutes for the purpose of depleting the taxpayer's pocket. And the taxpayer is in like manner entitled to be astute to prevent, so far as he honestly can, the depletion of his means by the Inland Revenue. So the bottom line here is that if it's legal, do it. And if it's not legal, um, you don't do it. And if it's not legal, you know, the, the people in Parliament that are called MPs can change the effing law. You know, I do not see a problem here. Uh yeah. Have you heard of indeed. the company Beyond Meat, by the way? Yes, yes, yeah. indeed, yes. Yes, it's, uh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's one of the few companies of its kind. I mean, when I say of, it, of, of its kind, you know, you've got the, the, the Ubers and all the others at the moment and, and the Netflix, uh, which are all beginning to fail, um, those, those huge mega businesses. And Beyond Meat seems to be one of the few recent IPOs on that scale that's actually working. Making money. Well, it's making money. It's keeping going up, more to the point. Whether so you, it's making money, of course, is a side issue. So you're worried about the fangs then, basically, and the, these, these, um, well, for example, Netflix you mentioned. Yeah, yeah. Tell us about that. <clears throat> well, it's, it's interesting on the fangs. And I'll, I'll just digress slightly to one side again to one of the things I was going to mention at the end. Today, of course, um, a lot of the people listening will, will, will have had Scottish mortgage over the last few years. And what an extraordinary fund it's been in terms of its performance, led by James Anderson and his team. And um, But in the last 18 months, it's begun to tail off a bit. Well, it's begun to tail off a bit because they were really heavy into fangs. Now, talking of bright people, there are some extraordinarily bright people, including James, in, in, in that business. And earlier this year, James wrote a piece um which which was called Graham or growth and, it, and it's the idea that value investing is dead you've heard all this before uh and that insofar as people like me for example will say there's only four ways to outperform value momentum small cap high yield that's it nothing else forget it mm. um what um what, what what james is saying is well you've all missed the point Value's now dead, and the world since uh, <laughs> Graham wrote his marvelous tome in 1949. Yeah, since he wrote that in 94, the world's changed. Values of no relevance anymore, oh and we God. need to actually replace the idea of value with growth in that list of four. In fact, should we even have the other three as well? You know. So, but it's a really I I, I reviewed it for clients this week actually and and any people listening if you just google graham or growth and bailey gifford will come up as well you'll get through to the article it's freely available and i reviewed that this week for 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 our uh, uh our people on on fund Exo because it makes some really really interesting points for sure and he acknowledges so many of the things which we would agree with but then he says but of course, none of those things apply to me because I haven't got all those behavioural problems and biases. And you know what? Uh, James Montier's got a whole chapter on that in 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 his little book of behavioural investing and his bigger version, the, the bigger book of behavioural investing, which he also wrote. He's got a whole chapter on all these fund managers that he used to 
present to talking about biases and so on. And they'd all sit there nodding and, and agree. And then he'd survey them at the end and they'd say, yes, I agree with everything James said. But they'd put a note afterwards along the lines of, yes, but of course I know that already and it doesn't apply to me. Yes. Well, yes. This, is like, this is like Garrison Keeler's Lake Wobegon, isn't it, where everybody in the entire town is above average at everything. Yes. Yes, yes that happens yeah. with, with driving, isn't it? When, where if exactly. You ask, if every, you ask, every, everyone's exactly. above average in terms of being able to yeah. you know, drive. So... So that's fascinating. Yeah. So what parts of it did you say you agree with? And obviously you don't agree with the, the value is dead. Oh, well, he, I mean, these are extraordinarily clever people. I mean, I am very stupid in comparison to people of, of, of that quality. I'm absolutely sure of that. Um, it was the bits I agree with, well, he's destroying efficient market hypothesis and all that. So, you know, I'd love that. Uh, you know, I know Tim would love that. And the fact that there are so many random events out there, you know, we all we all love the idea of that because yes, there are so many, and that we all try and and and, and overthink far too much. But then James seems to go on and say, yes, but what I'm doing, I'm I'm, I'm overcoming all those random things, and um, and I haven't got all, all, all of those uh, biases, and I and, and I really concentrate on on a process, and and then what's really interesting, um, he doesn't think. He recognises that luck can be an issue, and he talks about, for example, how the fact of Microsoft getting its chance at all from uh, launching out of a garage was 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 actually luck. Because um, I, I, if I remember that story correctly, IBM basically dropped the ball, didn't they? They just sort of gifted him the uh, the operating system for the home computer. Well, it it actually goes back a bit further than that again. So it's almost, and there are some there are some really good anecdotes in in the Graham or Growth piece, and I'd recommend it to people. Mm. Um, um, and and it's about it was something like uh, someone approached him and said, "Do you know anyone who does this?" And he recommended someone else, who then didn't bother turning up for the meeting. So they said, "Well, how about you guys then?" Mm. <laughs> and that was it. Yeah. And, and, and that was where it grew. It was just like that, that's, that's a Woody Allen quote, isn't it? 90% of success is just showing up. Yes, there, there yeah. is that. And, yeah. and that's the point I also make in the review that we did. You know, the world is full of really, really, really smart people. Um, but not all those really smart people have bank balances to match their intellect. And the difference between the two, those who've got that massive bank balance, say Gates, Bill Gates, uh, and for that matter, maybe James Anderson, mm. um, is a difference between those ones who've got great brains and those who've got great brains that haven't got those huge bank balances is the, one, the, the ones who've got the big bank balances had the great idea at the right moment. And that's luck. That's absolute luck. And all the really wealthy and successful people I've had the pleasure of meeting over the last, what, 30 odd years, and you guys probably the same, most of them, or nearly all of them, would admit that not only are they very clever, but they also got a lucky break. This brings up two points, actually, that I think you'll find really interesting. One is about luck, and it relates to something called the system that that Darren Brown, if you're familiar with him, did. He did yeah. this um, really interesting experiment where these people were receiving horse racing tips, and they showed it towards the latter end of it, and this woman was just on camera, just saying, yeah, I just keep getting these tips from this anonymous person and they're absolutely unbelievable. And they're at the the race course and the horse that they had the tip for for that week is in third place. And she says, well, it's it, they told me it's going to win. And you just watch the video of this horse going from, you know, fourth, third into second. And then just before the line, it wins. And she says, I don't understand this. This is absolutely unbelievable. 
I can't understand how this is working, but I just keep winning. And then the veil of this is lifted off where you look back and what Darren Brown has done, he's mailed out to like 50 different people every permutation of certain races that are going on. And as obviously somebody loses, they go by the wayside, but one one person will continue to the end yeah. where every single prediction was right. And what he's that, called Warren Buffett, isn't he? Well, 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 yeah. This this is slightly different. This is this is explaining the luck side of it. So what, yeah, what you I mean, have that, but what, it's the skill or luck, isn't it? I mean well, yeah, is Warren yeah, yeah. Buffett skillful or is he lucky? Well, I, yeah, no let, one knows, and we, yeah, everyone pretends to know. We'll come back to that, but that go on. The, the the point is that that history is written by the victor, so yeah. the victor will say this, the, explain it backwards. But what you're not seeing, and this is a point that Talib makes, is you're not seeing all the yeah. people that have lost money and, and yeah. lost along the way. You're just seeing yeah. the person that won. So, for example, yeah. you know, if you a, a fantastic book is is, and I've mentioned it before, and I'm very grateful to Alan Steele who came on the show to to recommend it is Loon Shots. Yeah, it's very good. Very uh, it's good. such a good book because it explains, you know, how ideas go from a crazy idea to something that just becomes, you know, so obvious that everybody could see it. And it reminds me of that expression that first, uh, with everything, you know, everybody poo-poos the idea and then then they, then they gradually accept it and then eventually they say, yeah, it was obvious in the first place. And what he expects, I mean, when you take someone like, um, Bill, uh, sorry, when you take someone like, Steve Jobs, and you see how he would have completely ruined his company right at the beginning of his career. And the only thing that changed his mind was other people saying, no, this is wrong. You you know, you're doing this wrong. And it was, and again, it looks almost like luck that he went, he left um, Apple, he got kicked out. He made a computer that nobody wanted. It was so expensive and it just didn't, it wouldn't fit in any office. But then it just so happened that, George Lucas and the filmmakers wanted a computer that was high-end graphics so they could create a program, so create a, create a film using the, the, these high-end computers. And that, and, that was, and, did that, and did that become Pixar? Yeah, and it became Pixar. And then he became, that's how he made his money, from Pixar. And then he realised yeah. that, you know, he was bashing one, one part of the, 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 you know, the people, you know, the designers, he, he thought they, they just, you know, were, were it. And the, pe- the people who actually, you know, created the technology he was very much against. So, you know, he learned that you've got to bring these two things together and you have different departments. And this is the, the, the idea of loon shots. It's like you have some people are really good at one thing and some people are really good at another. So you have a department that basically has crazy ideas, let them get on with it. They might come out with something that's going to change your company. Um, but everybody plays a part, which is part of Austrian economics. The guy who cleans the toilets and you know washes the the, the floor in the in the in the restaurant has as much value as the person who's making the meal and 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 advertises it because it's all part of one symbiotic part of business. So coming back to um, understanding success, if you look back, you can always say, "Oh, that would have just happened if if not." You know, if he hadn't been on there that day, then it wouldn't have happened. And and some people do that with films where they say everything hinged on that. I think in Star Wars, if somebody not being killed, that wouldn't have happened and et cetera, et cetera. But of course it did and it does. And that's how it's retrospectively explained. So with Warren Buffett, what you've had over, and I've always argued this, over the last, you know, 50 years or whatever, 60 years, you've had a bull market. And in every bear market, he loses a lot of money. So... 
Um, but it's not it's not just that just to go a little bit further, he's also made the best returns when he had small amounts of money to invest. And as what Berkshire Hathaway has got bigger and bigger and more annoying. And this is not a criticism of Buffett because in his his own defense, he has stated that size is an anchor to performance. Yeah. So he's well aware of this. He's been completely upfront. But nevertheless, the point remains, you know, the bigger you get, the smaller your returns going to be, or more specifically, the smaller your app performance is likely to get. Yeah, and his returns in the last, um, say, 10 years or so, because we often compare them to ours because it's quite fun. I mean, they're, they're, they're pretty poor. Mm. Um, and he's not out, even outperforming his, his home index. Um, but but then, yes, Warren Buffett does talk about the fact that he's now so big he can't make that much money. Um, but what he never says is, I also might have been really lucky early on. Um, um, and he made, as one as someone who I can't mention said to me, he, he, he did one great big deal and he's lived off it ever since. Mm. Now, I don't know that. I don't know if he's skillful or, 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 or lucky, but I've never known him acknowledge the fact he might have been lucky, which is interesting in itself. But this point all started off from saying that that somebody was saying value is dead, and isn't yeah, isn't James isn't, Anderson, yeah. isn't that a great country opinion um, signal that it's you, you've got to be as soon as people start saying something is dead, we hear it all the time. Say with volatility in foreign exchange, oh, there's no there's no vol, you know, the markets are quiet, they're never going to move again. They've the, the central banks have got it all sorted, and then suddenly you have like massive blow ups and and all sorts of volatility. Is yeah, that... and, and and on that point, what I'm finding interesting, sorry sorry to interrupt there, mm-hmm. what I'm finding interesting in the last couple of weeks is looking more global now than, than just UK, is every year for the last few years, at about this time of year, suddenly everyone's saying, it's recession next year. And and, and it never quite is, you know, because um, it, it just isn't. Um, this year, almost no one is talking about recession now next year they've gone completely bonkers since uh, oh the inverted the, the, the inverted yield curve has disappeared oh there isn't going to be a recession well it was never a great great <laughs> a great way to anticipate a recession in the first place but there's one great quote from um uh, the end of last week or just this week actually in the states which was on market watch and it's one economist in the states saying back up the truck and buy 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 there's no risk says economist hmm. You know, and and as soon as people start saying stuff like this at this stage in the market cycle, with so many other things flashing red, it just makes me think that I'm not trying. I'm not going to anticipate a recession next year. But I think one of the best indicators of the fact that there might be one is that so many people at this point this year are saying there won't be one next year. We, um, we had. Oh, sorry, we, we had Daniel DiMartino Booth on the show, and yeah. she was a strong advocate of the inverted yield curve being a very oh. good, a very good indicator that. that oh, sorry, so, I'm to, well, well, t- get tell off me, the, get off the, get off the fence, Brian. Yeah, just, just, just. This is this is the point I want to make. I want to hear the other side of the argument because I, I really, I thought her argument was very compelling. So tell, tell me why it's wrong. Okay, let me ask you then, why is it important to know if they're, well, well, other than the fact that the, the, the research highlights that the inverted yield curve has never had any practical value in telling you when there might be a recession ahead, then what, what are we trying to do? Are we trying to make money in the stock market or are we trying to anticipate recessions? Well, that's a, that's a different question. Are we anticipating recessions because we think that that has some impact on the stock market? That is a different question. I it, no, totally it's not. Agree. It's connected. Well, because we're, we're all in the investment business. We exactly. Well, that, but that's what I'm saying. She, if she's saying. If she's saying this predicts a recession and there is a recession, yet the stock market goes up, I can differentiate those two points. And she's not saying that the market's going to go down. 
Um, I'm not putting words in her mouth. She's just saying this predicts a recession. So she's no, looking. I think she's wrong on. She's wrong. She's wrong on the fact that it predicts a recession. And I would also say it's not relevant to what happens in the market. And let me. And now I, I'm bringing forward all my books from the end, Your Honour. <laughs> I'm bringing in all my evidence <laughs> now. There is a. I'm going to recommend another brilliant book. That, that almost no one has read, and it would stop some of these people in 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 their tracks talking garbage about recession, month after or day after day, month after month. Oh, I've got a better inverted U curve than you've got. I mean, it's so childish and pointless. And the book is it's called Major. It's very it's very dull sounding. And you know what? It's because it's very dull, and it's called Major Recessions. Right. And what and what and what's that about? It's about it's about major recessions, <laughs> and it's written by a guy called Christopher Dow. Now he's really now he is really interesting, because he was right at the centre of the rebuilding of the British economy after the Second World War, and he's one of those guys that unfortunately people like him aren't around anymore. They're quiet but magnificent people sitting in the background who are actually running the economy. In this case, it was the UK economy. Um, for for much of the period up until um, around about 1990, 1995. So, so his book is amazing to read, analysing, and 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 more or less what he he says is, and and bear in mind he was he was effectively running the economy quietly in the background for about uh, thirty odd years. He said, well, look, he said the only, the only kinds of recessions that are of any significance at all, um, only kinds of recessions that are significant are what I call major recessions, which are basically multi multi-year recessions. The whole idea of these, the technical recessions, which the inverted yield curve, whichever one you want to look at, might predict, are actually of no relevance at all. They're just they're just bumps in, in the road. And Christopher Dow in that book talks about that uh, in, in, in fantastic detail in a way which I think people have forgotten all this stuff. And you were going on about the investment banks. The investment banks and all these other people, the rating agencies, they've always got to have something to say. They've got to have something to talk about. Mm. And and predicting the next recession is something which they will talk about ad infinitum. But it has no value at all to any of us as investors. So you might well then ask me, and if you weren't going to, I'll ask me the question. (laughs) So what's a major recession, Brian? How do we know when that's going to come? You don't. That's the whole point. You don't know when a major recession is going to come along. First of all, what is it? It's an absolute fall in GDP from one year to the next. And the next thing is that you only get a major recession, and there have only been six since 1920, including 2008. What you get is some shock. So in other words, something which can't possibly be anticipated at all on top of inherent vulnerability. So if there's a major recession, in other words, one which has consequence for the stock market, if there's going to be a major recession next year, there has to be a shock, which we can't possibly anticipate. But what we can identify is the conditions of, of inherent vulnerability. And that's the thing which, you know, you guys talk about all the time. I talk about all the time, you know, debt, liquidity, valuation, emphasis on computer trading and so on. We have all of the features of the inherent vulnerability. We're just waiting for the shock. When that will come, who knows? But we just need to take on board that we are extremely vulnerable where we are. I haven't read the uh, James Anderson piece yet, but it sounds like it is 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 a must read piece. Where I suspect that uh, I might have some sympathy for his argument if it's part of the text is that, 
and this was something the 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 bit that I the piece that I continually cite is something called the Clue Train Manifesto, which I came across in ninety eight or ninety nine. It's the point that the internet changes everything. The rise of digital communications changes everything. To the extent, and a Dominic Frisby, who we had on a while back, we've had on twice, I think, but he ma he makes the point that to get from concept of one of the songs he recently produced, 17 million F-offs, to from, from the, the idea of the song to recording it, to plonking it online and then seeing it take off you know, like wildfire on YouTube uh, and Facebook... It took about a week or two weeks, so you can go now. In that case, he didn't, he wasn't able to maximise the sort of the, you know, the, the 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 monetization of it. But that's a separate thing. The point being, in a previous era, that would have taken God knows how many months to to put together to record it, you know, to 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 get it out and, and all the rest of it. And now he can sort of self-publish and do it himself. So I've got a lot of sympathy with, I suspect, not having read the Anderson piece, I'm I'm convinced that this kind of logic will be will be embedded in there somewhere. That what's different this time is that you can go from a, a and other entrepreneur can go from startup to multi-billion sort of unicorn market cap practically overnight and get a global audience for your product or service in a way that simply wasn't possible until the internet was around. Yeah, and I I, I think that's true. But then um, on the other hand, that kind of technology then becomes so widely applied in business it becomes irrelevant. It's like you know, once upon a time, the ele electricity was an amazing invention. Before that, you know, canals and the wheel and so on. But then once everyone's exploiting them, it, it, it's not a distinguishing factor anymore. But if you, but, 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 sorry, to, sorry to sort of chip in. But if, 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 if you, if you are, you know, the one in a thousand or one in a million uh, business like, say, Facebook, less so Twitter, but Facebook or Amazon or Google, and you get first mover advantage, or or actually, if not even let's not even call it that. Let's call it second or third or fourth mover advantage, because you don't need to be the first; you just need to be the best. Then, then you get these huge economies of scale, network effects, and then you get to basically monopoly status, and it's virtually impossible to compete with you. So, or you'd think that the, the rise of digitization and the internet economy would mean there's vast competition in everything but that doesn't actually seem to be the case you know who do you use for example to order books or, or other things online it's amazon you know there aren't two or three other providers it's just amazon and they they, they dominate the the retail market now and they're you know they're having a huge impact on the high street and you could say the same thing for google you don't use five search engines you use one or if you're living in the past you use i don't know alta vista or yahoo or something but i think that that's always been the case with prior inventions through through history as well that you will get dominant parties for a period of time a and then things will happen and, and the most likely thing that's going to happen is those monopolies are going to be broken up i mean that's that's a point that you you've you've argued isn't it paul that ultimately yeah. these the, the likes of the fangs are are going to be subject to antitrust provisions in the u.s yeah yeah these these companies are just too big and and uh too powerful in, in many ways and and uh and are very very you know, valuable. So they 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 could be a, a great vote winner to tax and basically, you know, reduce their powers. I and mean, it's it's I've made the point a few times, but you know, Google's got better information on the individual than the government, and it just can't. It just doesn't sit right. It must be something that that someone's going to pass a law and say, no, we're going to have to. That's too powerful to have in a separate company. That's got to come back to the government. So it's an excuse yeah. for doing it. Yeah. And as privacy issues grow that's that's how they will get these companies i think that's how the government will take control back um 
but anyway, I mean, that's just my my finger in the in the in the air. Uh, and, on, and on that, Paul, I don't think you need left leaning um, governments to for that to be done anyway or either. I you know I think it's just as likely that that, that a Trump or Johnson government could actually do that going forward. Yes. Uh, to, to 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 appease a certain part of of their of their voting class. Absolutely, I think you know the privacy issue is something that Dominic Frisbee brought up, and it's not something that's going to go away. So it it just it and and also you know Amazon being un well competing in the way that it is. Any other business, you'd look at that as a as a monopoly that that should not be allowed to continue. You know, there should be penalties. You should have other markets. There should be more competition in, in capitalism. That's how it's supposed to work, isn't it? So yeah. if you if you watch the documentary about um, decoding Bill Gates, I don't know, I'm not sure if you've seen it, Brian. Have you seen it? I, I started watching it. Okay. Um, I haven't finished it, I must admit. Okay, well, it, it is worth finishing. It's really excellent. But one of the bits yeah. where I thought was really amazing is when they came after him because they said he was too successful. He said that they said Windows was too successful yeah. and he had to basically put his whole company on hold and just fight it. He just had to fight the authorities. And they were, he had to give depositions to the government and they were cutting it in a way to make him look really bad. And he was just saying, look, I've just been successful. You know, what? where's this coming from? IBM yeah. was more successful than me and now I've come along with my software and now I'm really successful and there's no competition. What do you want me to do? So on the, on the one hand, I, I had a lot of sympathy for, for him, for what he was creating. He was demonized for it um, because everybody you know it was the most dominant um piece of software and everyone had to buy it um so he had this monopolistic advantage that they just decided he 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 wasn't allowed to have so why quite why they haven't done that with the other uh with something so obvious as amazon as much as i enjoy using it as a consumer um i i'd also a bit like pubs you know you don't want to see pubs disappear but then again you've, you've got to use them in order for them to work and when people are buying things and they go into a shop and they try it out and then they go on amazon and buy it you know that's that's never going to work it's not fair to the shop so you know something's yeah. got to change there i mean presumably the reason why these issues haven't been addressed already is the lobby power of these gigantic corporations they're politically too too uh, powerful back to capitalism as as uh, yeah as Sir Stephen Wilkinson said, yeah. Um, we, I mean, we've, we're getting into the realm of politics now. So, Brian, what, what's, what, what, what's your take on? I should add, we're recording this on Sunday, the fifteenth of December. So, just after, just after the general election, uh, the results. What? How, how are you feeling today versus, say, Thursday morning? Um, there's a bit more clarity, um, which is welcome. Um, economically, for an awful lot of people, not not in my not in my head, uh, Brian. My, my, I'm so furiously hungover, having celebrated. I, I, don't think, I don't think I'd be seeing straight for about a week. Are you still? You're still celebrating, aren't you, Tim? You're still going. Well, how can you not? It's like a hundred Christmases coming all at once. There are there are businesses that I deal with around the UK in some sectors, and building and construction is one that stands out. And I've got a couple of calls into some of the key guys in, in one or two on Monday, and. I know they're going to be saying to me, this is a this is a relief because they, I mean, I know one in particular had a sort of bulging order book, but the people who made the orders weren't yet prepared to press the button because, mm. and 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 this was in the north uh, west of the country. Um, yep. And and they were, it was talk, talking all the time about the uncertainty of, of Brexit. And 
I'm not sure whether the uncertainty of Brexit was more imagined than real anyway for them. But nonetheless, the fact that it was there at all and did stop people pressing the button to do the things they wanted to do, build the things they wanted to do, build. Um, if if that has now gone, um, that, that's got to be very positive. Although, as, as, as one uh, um, CEO of one of those companies said to me, he said it's going to be a real bugger of a problem, though, because I don't know where... I don't know where all the supplies are going to come from for all these people who are now going to want to press the button to build that thing or refurbish that factory and and, and so on. That's an interesting one. <laughs> Might be some opportunities there in the brick builders, not mentioning any names over the mm. next few months um, or days, actually, because I, I think it's a no-brainer that where the where the opportunities are in, are in the market. Um, I think whether Labour or the Tories won, what was really interesting about this election was the commitment for spending an awful lot of money more, more money on the domestic economy yeah uh, that, that that was going to happen I, either way so if i take a political hat off and just look at the investing hat um what was what would have happened if labor had won is uh, the markets would have plummeted and i would have been piling into smaller companies um and, and the, the long-term evidence for that being a massive winner on the election of a left-leaning government is there's lots of lots of real good evidence on that but that isn't what happened and, and interestingly um the market obviously didn't fall um lo- lots of mid caps i mean the mid if, if i just look at uh, talk about momentum investing if you just look at all the funds which went up on friday i've got a list of them here which went up best of the uk invested funds clearly the mid 250 funds mm. were, were the ones um the small caps didn't actually um do anything much. Um, and I think that's where the greatest opportunity is. It's obvious to buy into the mid 250s. They're all, it's all a lot more liquid and there are a lot more big names in there that people understand. The ex- and, and so there'll be a bit of excitement there over a, a few days more, perhaps. And also the fact that, that Sterling's rallied is not necessarily hugely positive for the, for the larger exporters. No, for some mid two fifties, obviously it's not, but others it clearly was. Um, who who aren't so much exporting, they're you know much more domestic focused to to two fifty companies. But I think the excitement, not just for the next few days, but for the next five years now, is in small caps, mm. uh, and that's the in the UK that is, and that's and that's very very exciting. I think. Do you think the broader path for the market globally now is is still upwards into into next year? Glo- globally, I mean. Um, Sorry, I didn't know if, if Tim was going to say something there, but I was talking earlier about those vulnerabilities, you know, that Christopher Dow talked about. You know, you have to have those vulnerabilities um, such that if there was a shock, you will then get a, a major recession and the stock market fall. And it's not because the major recession causes the stock market fall. It's because those vulnerabilities are effectively across the economy and the stock market. And the shock hits both because what you hit is confidence. Um, you don't hit the economy, you don't hit the stock market, you hit confidence, which sits above both of those things. Yes. And that's what, that, and uh, and it's it's confidence being hit, which is the important thing. Now, we've got all those vulnerabilities, um, which, which I mentioned, you know, that value, valuation, debts, liquidity, and so on. And, and if I look at other measures, which are a bit more esoteric on the US stock market, I mean, it worries me sen- senseless, I have to say. Um, I, the issue for me then becomes, can something like UK small caps work even in an environment where the US goes into a, a, down, a multi-year downturn? That's exactly why I asked the question, because it seemed and, like you're positive there. Yeah, but yeah, not in the US. 
And that's the really big problem for uh, which I'll be addressing with, with with clients this week. So what's the evidence on this? Um, it's quite interesting. I mean, really, we've got the 19, take the 1980s where Japan massively outperformed the US and then the 1990s where the US massively outperformed Japan. So some sectors um, um, within a country and some countries versus other countries can outperform even when an apparently dominant country um, is is tailing off. Um, so I'm actually trying to be positive. <laughs> and if I can convince, I mean, we, we've got massive cash holdings with clients um, and, and most of those self-directed have also got massive cash holdings. And I was reading this week from Goldman Sachs there, their private clients to a man and woman are very, very cautiously invested with very, very high cash holdings. Has enough happened in the last two days insofar as some of those are based in the UK to to get them off the the fence to invest into the UK? I think what I'm likely to be saying to clients this week is, you know, let's take some of the cash off the table, uh, but drip it into the small caps because the the excitement simply hasn't been there and probably won't be in the next few days because there's not enough liquidity there. And it's not a natural place for the bigger investors who move markets to go to. So I think I think there's scope on, across the electoral cycle. Let's look at it as we're talking about politics. On a five-year view, I think building an exposure into UK small caps, slowly but surely, cautiously optimistic, allowing for the fact that if there's a shock which hits the US and drags everyone else down, because you know that big vulnerability on valuation and debt is, you know, is in the US, but it's not alone in that regard. Um, we've got to be aware of, of that risk. So we also, cautiously optimistic, we also always have for clients stop losses in place as well. So you have to be very um, careful about what you invest in the small you caps. You, you, yeah. Yeah. So would there be a sector that you think would would outperform and one that you think that you should possibly be a bit more cautious about? A subsector of small caps? Yes. Yeah. Well, in, in insofar as we're primarily buying funds, um, um, we we won't try and be overly clever looking at all of the underlying holdings of each uh, fund because if we knew enough about all those underlying holdings, I wouldn't be using a fund. Got We'd it. simply be investing directly in the stocks ourselves. Um, so we use momentum to look at which funds are working and we make sure that they're slightly larger small cap funds so that w- what's probably happening is that um, this, this fund manager – might be at the moment a little bit more skillful than lucky, but also because it's a larger fund, um, it, it, he, he's probably got quite a few more more liquid small caps in there rather than, say, a, a small cap fund of 10, 20, 30 million, which is, is probably might be a guy above his garage um, that's sort of managing it by the seat of his pants. So you have to be wary about who's coming top of the league tables in, in, in the small cap area. So for example, uh, you t- then talked about sectors. What, what, I mean, one that I do like because they always have a fixed position into this area is, say, Lion Trust UK Small Cap has a pretty well fixed 30% exposure to dynamic UK tech businesses. I happen to love that. Uh, I love that idea because, I mean, despite what James Anderson is saying, you know, that Microsoft might keep on growing at 20% a year. You're going to find the really exciting businesses of the next decade and the decade after, I believe, uh, amongst things like those uh, dynamic uh, smaller companies in the UK. And if Boris Johnson 
is going to pile more money into UK tech. And to me, it seems a no-brainer to do that because there's a lot of skills in that area in the UK, which can then be exported. Um, you know, I've, I've really got a, um, uh, I, I love that particular uh, fund, I have to say, Lion Trust UK Smaller. I was going to ask about headwinds to the US economy. What what do you um, like for, debt? For me, and- it's, for me, it's not, well, The I'd say there's, there's two things. So I'm, I'm just sort of putting next week's commentary to bed. Um, and the two things now that I mean, I'm probably more upbeat about the political situation here and the Brexit implications than it sounds like Brian is. But either way, I, uh, I think we probably both sort of agreed that the, that the mood music has changed and the clouds have largely lifted from the UK stock market and from sterling. Um, so the, the things that are, are now most interest me at a sort of conceptual level, one of them is... Um, the 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 news that the this was reported in the FT about two weeks ago that the Fed is effectively considering you know, taking its its two percent inflation target and throwing it in the bin. In other words, it, having basically conceded that it can't it it can't you know create inflation. It's now saying, well, let's not worry about it and let's let's let the economy run a little bit hot if required. I think that's an accident waiting to happen. Um, and the other thing that that um, interests me, and again, this is this is this is phrase apophatically that I came across through a chap called Jonathan Escott, who we, I think we had on the show last yes. year. Um, so if you invest apophatically, it means if you think something's overvalued, you don't short it; you simply ignore it or avoid it because you don't know the future. And I think that's an extremely useful word to deploy now. So. In 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 the case of well the case of global markets the biggest concern I now have and it's perhaps partly a political issue so I, it's it's impossible for me to be entirely objective it's basically the state of the eurozone financial system and the one guy who's probably said more on this topic than anybody is Russell Napier and he's simply been making the point for some months now that the eurozone financial system is is on the verge of collapsing uh, in a large part because the whole movement towards a common currency is garbage, toxic, poisonous, failing, it's not working. And I would say the big disgrace about our media, mainstream media over the last three years, is that the real crisis in the Eurozone was never even part of the debate over Brexit. It was never even featured. So I am delighted that it now looks like Boris and the new Conservative government is is, is going to start to tackle some of the inherent uh remain bias in our media and it may ultimately mean that you know the bbc lose its license field together and i just say thank god for that <laughs> well I, no, I agree with you tim on all of the i mean i have my issues with the bbc as well um but i uh I, all of that stuff on europe and the vulnerability there is given i mean i agree with you on all of that for sure and have done since the uh, since the euro was introduced and and uh, I, I, I'm... because there's no plan B, there was never a plan B in there, and there, there is no plan B today. And, and it's the and it's a key reason for me why I why I voted Brexit because yeah. it was never about the UK. For me, it was more about the fact that Europe at some point is going to the European financial system is going to collapse, and um, the U, the UK doesn't need to be involved in that. It's just step to one side, guys, and. And and you might you know you can offer, perhaps offer some useful help from from outside, but mm. you don't want to be in the middle of that mess when it happens. And I say that as a plastic paddy, so I always think I'm slightly more neutral. 
I mean, what Paul? What's your what's your take on on say you know matters financial? I mean, ba- effectively bank related, specifically in the context of of Europe. Is that something you're you're following at the moment? Well, you know, everything seems to be rising at the moment, just very short term on this wave of. I guess, euphoria and the timing of the so-called trade deals in America. But the underlying problems are still there. And I think I've said this many times, you know, the UK leaving, um, you know, the, the European Union is worse for the euro than it would ever be for sterling. And this is this is the crux of the matter. There were so many people talking about how sterling was going to collapse. It was going to be terrible for us if we left and all this stuff. And, and how it was going to affect us badly. But nobody was ever saying anything about the Europeans and how actually it would be very bad for the euro. It was almost like, you, you idiots want to leave. Well, you're going to die on your own, but we're going to be all right. Well, actually, you know, the system within Europe doesn't work. And the reason why we want to leave in the first place is because it's not working. And, you know, I, I'm pretty sure that people will be lining up to go. Now, there's... Um, there's um, we're starting to see some pressure on the euro, but nothing, nothing sort of out of the ordinary. Just you know, short-term fluctuations, but it just goes to show that when the markets broadly, uh, stock markets are m- moving higher, you're not getting any sort of volatility trades going on. Um, there's no like collapse in bonds. There's no collapse in stocks, and and therefore currencies can remain relatively calm. But this situation is not going to remain. It's it will change just purely because of cycles and whenever that happens there is there is <laughs> boy is there a cycle to to, uh, to to put its effect into the market if you like so there's 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 so much going on politically there's so much going on with um you know 5000 year low interest rates and there's so much going on um you know w- w- with the amount of money that's just been flooded into the system that whatever reaction we're going to see, we're going to see a very big one. And so I don't know where where it's going to come from. And I don't think necessarily any country will be um, completely shielded from it. But I do think that the pressures are, are, are being ramped up on the European Union, on the on the Eurozone and on the currency. And, and so... Okay. Sorry, and, Paul. Yeah. No, You're no. So, so it, was a, yeah. it was actually just to segue into, we were going to do an Ask Tim section, but Dixie DeVille on YouTube asked this question. Could it be a consideration that if there is a Brexit, that that would be the straw that broke Deutsche Bank? The domino effect worldwide worldwide is well known by the inner circle of politicians. It will never be discussed among the lesser politicians or citizens. Therefore, the only thing that would bring Brexit could be, one, a civil war, or two, the dominoes have fallen, so Brexit, Brexit hurts nothing at this point. The rule of law is out the window whenever the money of the people control everything. Now, I, th- I think the point there is just that, you know, that if Brexit does happen, yes, it could be this uh, this big shock on the system that finally makes all the yeah. other problems come to the fore. It might look like Brexit caused it, but actually it's not being... It, it's, just it's, a, it's just a, a simultaneous thing. It's purely coincidental. Exactly. Uh, it was going to happen anyway, It's just, but this has just accelerated it. Yeah, and it goes back to what Christopher Dow said in, in, in that major recessions book that no one's read, is that um, you only get major recessions when you have all the inherent vulnerability and you've added the political element as, as, as well there, Paul, which is really important. Isn't that interesting? And, that and, interesting and, that they said that as another inherent vulnerability. And and we just wait for the shock. Uh, We don't know what it will be and we don't know when it will be, but we know that when it does come, the inherent vulnerability is now is baked in. 
we so that, wait, that, we, sorry, we wait sorry. for the shock and then we will get a major recession and a multi-year bear market in quick succession. To that point, Brian, I was struck um, when I went to the, the Money Week annual investment conference about a fortnight ago. Who hit uh, you? Uh, I, I never saw it. It came from behind, so you know I've no idea. No idea. No idea from whence it came. But um, I managed to catch a, a panel um, session with uh, James Ferguson, who's probably the best bank analyst I know, uh, and a very good economist, and Gillian Tett, uh, who writes for the FT. So enough said on that point. And Daniel Hannan, who is, as we know, a god. And then Russell Napier followed up with a, a piece. So for, for the people who weren't already oh sort of dang, dangling from their net, from their nooses outside of the building, they sort of Russell finished them off and garroted them all. Um, <laughs> and the, the thing I was really struck by was there was effective unanimity of view that we are going to get, you know, globally, we are going to get modern monetary theory, that we are going to get helicopter money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I, I have no strong views on this. I, I'm, I suspect that the, the people who made that argument are probably right. But um, since I, I, mean, I'm no, I make no secret of the fact that I think central bankers are all, you know, basically scum-sucking bottom dwellers anyway. But the fact that they now have these awesome powers um, basically to destroy themselves, to destroy their entire economies, uh, is just worth bearing in mind, particularly as we now have a effectively a sort of a, a lawyer crook at the heart of the ECB, someone who doesn't know any economics at all, um, uh, but no names, no pack draw, Christine Lagarde. So um, so it, 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 this could easily, all I'm saying is her, her early, her very earliest days in office could yet see her blindsided by a massive, massive shock. And if that is then followed up by, let's say, you know, QE to the power of infinity, then, well, let's just say, I have I lose no sleep at night having a fairly meaningful allocation both professionally I with our clients and also personally to precious metals. So you 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 mix the sort of the MMT the the advance of potential advance of MMT with the fact that the Fed has now abandoned its inflation target. You know to me there's a there's a you know these these breadcrumbs are leading to a trail of inflation further down the pipe further down the pipe. They are yeah it's just tight tight timing is the issue. But can I just say that didn't didn't uh, people's QE begin with Boris's visit to the northeast yesterday, Tim? Just to wind you up. Quite no, quite no. I mean, I, uh, th- and this is another thing. So it, yes, I, I think where where your let's say reticence in relation to the, sort of the political climate here is fully justified. And the, the the guy I'd give credit to for this more recently would be John Hearn, who, we, who we've had on, uh, and he made this point in a presentation he made at the London Institute of Banking and Finance only a couple of weeks ago. The sad reality for those of us that otherwise would be, you know, unashamed Boris worshippers is that whether you look at Conservatives, Lib Dems or Labour, each of the major parties is committed, was committed during the campaign to basically spending the better part of 50% of GDP on spending. Uh, in other words, the, 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 the government would be ha- ro- approaching half of the entire economy, which is too big. It's simply too big. And so that's that's the the big fear I have that you know there is currently a sort of wa- a wave of euphoria that's sweeping across certainly the centrist to sort of slightly right leaning parts of the the country, uh, but the big caveat is is there actually philosophically that much difference between the conservatives and everybody else? Everybody has shifted left. Everybody has shifted to tax and spend. And so mm. the, the one thing that I that the hope I cling to is that Boris, under people like Steve, or with the help of people like Steve Baker, will actually rediscover, let's call it the spirit of Thatcherism. 
proper free market economics. Yeah, because I think there's a lot more. I, I think one of the papers this morning was talking about the fact that already some people in the background in the Tory party are talking about things which came nowhere near the manifesto. Yeah. And I think in the next, um, it might not be necessarily in the next few months, <clears throat> but within the next 12 months, let's say, because some of these things will still have to be worked out by those clever people in the background, there are going to be m m uh, m many more reforms than we expect. And I think a number of them may well be of that Thatcherite style. And it will be around things like affordable housing, for example. It's basic stuff, but it's there's going to be a lot of reform around housing because that's how you get people galvanised in scale. I'm going to take a gamble here, Brian, and, and say I think you've got a strong view on precious metals because we haven't touched upon that yet. Um, well, I mean, I, 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 <laughs> when was the peak in gold? Was it 2011? I yes, think it, was 2011. it was. It was, I think, November I, 2011. I, I think I did a live call with the FT um, more or less at the top uh, on a Saturday morning and said what a <laughs> what, what a pile of doo-doos was gold and it really had no investment relevance to anyone at all. And uh, but, but, but by the way, guys... Oh, hang on. Sorry, the, the line's suddenly gone dead. Yeah. I'm sorry about that. But yeah. <laughs> Tim Price has left the building. <laughs> yeah. but, 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 but by the way, our most basic technical analysis, which uses a ruler and a pencil indicates that gold is about to plummet and will come down through a thousand dollars an ounce um and i got hate mail from around the world the best one the best one was from a guy in new zealand who said i'm so glad that you live nowhere near me you know that kind of thing and um and and i'm pleased to say i was right he was wrong um, um and um it, no gold hasn't come below a thousand dollars an ounce yet um I, I, using a pencil and a ruler I try not to overcomplicate things. I'd still say it's coming off under a thousand dollars an ounce. There may well, uh, there will then be a point. There will be a point where it will be bloody obvious that you should buy gold. It isn't now. Right. So you, so you see it pretty much in the same way that I do, from a technical point of view. Yeah. 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 I mean, but if you, but there's no I other would... way to analyze gold because you can't rationally analyze gold in any other way. I, but I would also suggest that you look at some intermarket analysis, which is if you look at the price of palladium and rhodium, yeah. they are screaming higher. And, yeah. you know, to, to have to have a, a you know, a, a proper bull market in precious metals, you do need them all to go up. So we've got to ask a, quest, a question, which is the the problem? See, I, I also saw the, the collapse in gold and I saw it because other precious metals weren't moving up. Platinum wasn't moving up. No, they peaked, peaked previously. Gold was going up yeah. on the sort of sentiment that yeah. is the driver of gold. And, and whereas so, the economic drivers which drove the others meant that they peaked uh, were about three years before when, when China kind of peaked. Basically, there was what we call divergence between all the different um, yeah. uh, precious metals, which was a, and plus a very, very bullish um, sentiment which was a warning sign, and then technically yeah. it came off. Yeah. But at the moment, I don't know whether people are necessarily that bullish on on precious metals anymore. And yet you've got central you've got, banks. Are, central banks have never been buying this stuff so quickly. Is that? I mean, is but is that a good indicator? Which is a sign to go, sell, isn't it? Because they've never got gold right. So that, that's, uh, that's the that's problem. The well, no, I mean, the, the, well, no. To be fair, they're not trading this stuff. They've been continually accumulating it for I think probably as long as any of us can remember. 
Well, a yeah. lot more in the last year, though. I mean, uh, more in the last year than for quite a long time. But the um, so purely from a momentum point of view, I think Tim's yeah. made and other guests have made some very good arguments for owning some gold as, as a hedge um, to a, an overall portfolio. And I think that's to be fair. That's how Tim's always talked about it because he's he yeah. looks at lots of different. You know, he, he's got a diverse method of, of analyzing and investing in the market so you know trend following etc etc you not all the eggs are in one basket and that makes perfect sense so nobody's just saying oh you know buy gold put all your money into it that's it they're just saying well look you know gold is probably a good place to put some money just in case and actually in many ways i don't think that makes any sense paul i mean i if i've got something in my portfolio i want one clear solid evidence-based reason for having it there there isn't one for gold Makes well, you no made, sense. you but you made a good you made a good argument for not owning it i you thought it was going to go down so that makes a good argument for owning it if you think it's going to go up yeah but then you've got to have a good reason why you think it's going to go up and that's no, you where don't. i think a lot of no it, you don't you just you don't have, have to, to think... have a reason you just sit no. on it yeah you why just... would you just sit on something with no I... reason to think it's going to go up i mean but no... it's, it, well, it's... Only, only because it's been the best only because it's been the best store of value of anything for five thousand years and admittedly in the long run that's the trend but more specifically it's 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 a circumstantial uh thing to, to, to the extent to the but extent case tim i mean that 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 one gets popped up all the time about it's the best store of value. There is absolutely no evidence on that point. It's the only thing that's ever lasted for 5,000 years. Nothing else ever has. No fiat currency has ever lasted. They all, I think it was Voltaire that first said every every fiat currency, you know, ultimately reduces to its intrinsic value, which is zero. Well, gold's outlived all of them. I, I, now, clearly, that's a very long-term argument, but but more specifically... Bernstein on gold. Yeah, well, he was, he was an anti-gold guy. But the, the, point, the point being, it, we are now living through an occasion when there has never been more debt in the financial system before. You know, governments, corporates, households, but particularly governments, that debt can never, mathematically, it can never and hence will never be repaid in anything except devalued money. So if you want an argument for holding gold, it's simply, well, you earn nothing on cash, so why not hold something that actually has the potential to give you a positive return in price terms? Cash won't do it anymore. In, in addition to that, for your cash to give you any kind of return, you need to stick it in a bank, and that gives you counterparty risk. I would humbly suggest, particularly in the context of the Eurozone, bank counterparty risk has never been higher than it potentially is now. So as far as I'm concerned, there are plenty of arguments for holding gold, if only, if only, if, if only as a way of not losing money in other areas. No, Tim, Tim I, I, I would much rather buy premium bonds. I think it makes a lot more sense. Well, we, 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 we agree to disagree. We agree to, we agree to disagree. But to be fair, but yeah, to you be can fair... Only, you can only invest up to 50 grand into them. Yeah, you can't, you can't invest more than 50,000 and... And, and so, what would you do with the? Say you had a hundred thousand, then what would you do with the rest of it? Well, I mean, um, when the, when when that gold pattern is complete, when it's under a thousand dollars, when it goes back to the obvious long-term support, I'll I'll buy gold. In the meantime, I'm not going to lose money. Um, let's ignore inflation for a minute. I'm not. But it, but 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 Brian, you do concede it. There's a there's a possibility it may never get there. You may you may never get your entry in a, below a thousand. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, that's the case. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can see, I can see what you were saying. Because to, 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 right. to take to take to, to extend the, that argument, we we probably all know uh, investors who have been waiting for the the great equity correction, and it's never arrived. So people have been fro- those people have been frozen out of the market for a decade. I'm not sure that's an argument for buying gold, is it? 
no, no, no. no, 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 no what I'm really making the yeah. point that, that if you have a, let's say, and I'm not, I'm not being hypercritical, Brian. I'm simply, you know, we're having a debate. But I'm saying if you've got, if you've got a specific price target in mind, it may never get there. And if that's what you're hanging your, let's say, your your buy decision on, you may never make that. You may never get to exercise that decision. So, you know, for example, March 09, we now know with hindsight, was the buying opportunity of a generation, certainly for US, but basically for stocks globally. But if but March 09 did not at the time feel like the time to be buying anything, March 09 felt like the end of the world. So for, and, and I have a lot of sympathy for these people. Uh, there are many people who've basically been wait, waiting for a correction that never really came because of QE and NERP and ZERP. Um, but you know that means they've effectively missed out on one of the most amazing rallies in the history of the financial markets. So, so it's, it's, all, I'm, all I'm highlighting is that a, a, a somewhat, dare I say, arbitrary price target may mean you're never in. You're never in again, or you're, you're you're never in for such a long period of time. You might as well not be in it again. Well, it's not an arbitrary price target, and it's not a price target. It's a support target. It's where the obvious. It's a ruler and a pencil thing. It's where the long-term support is, and and, and because there are no other useful indicators for gold there aren't um because it's not like palladium and the other things where you can see where demand's coming from um i, I will simply wait until it goes down to that support level but in the meantime gold isn't terribly relevant because i've got a huge opportunity set globally some massively massive opportunities globally which i can look at at any one point in time which are much more understandable they're real-world opportunities, um, at, whereas gold is a bit Alice in Wonderland. Why would I have 5 or 10% of my portfolio in something when I, where I have no idea what drives it up or down, but it does, with reasonable precision, hit, hit support levels and is driven by sentiment over short periods and, and so on? Um, and I've got no other reason to hold gold. It, it's 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 think of it just in terms of another currency. Then, so you might not want to hold any other currency, but gold. At the, I would define gold effectively in extremis as the best currency you can own for the medium term because it's the only one that can't be printed on demand. It takes us back to MMT again. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry, it's too esoteric, Tim. And that's the that's the esoteric argument I hear all the time. I, I'm managing client portfolios, and, and and I see absolutely no reason to own gold unless it's right down at support and, and, and sentiment is battered because there are no other criteria for me judging gold as an investment. None. So I'm, I'm guessing you have the same view on Bitcoin then or, or cryptocurrencies um, or a similar view. Well, I think in Bitcoin, I, 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 that perhaps comes to a slightly different view as well, which is don't buy what you don't understand. Yeah, but some people do understand it. No, I know. I, that's why I wouldn't buy it because I don't understand it. And if there are other right. people now, can I just tell you that for for quite a few years, I had people who, who some who did understand it uh, very much, very very much understood it, and then there were others who thought they understood it or thought they they knew people who did understand it who who were buying it. What I was simply looking at, exactly the same as with gold, I was looking at what that chart was doing, and I saw the exponential rise. And I said to one or two friends, actually, who piled a lot of money in and who'd gone in quite late, but had made still, probably still double their money, having gone in quite late. I said, look, just get the money out now. No, I don't need to, Brian. It's a really helpful advice, really helpful. I said, look at, look at this chart. And let me show you six other charts of China, of oil, of gold, at other points where there was exactly the same pattern. And I don't mean a bit like it. I mean, exactly the same exponential rise. 
And what happened next was they all lost about 70 or 80 percent of their value. And I said, so get out now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was something that Tim and I talked about one on, I think, probably the third podcast, how at $20,000, Bitcoin had, was ready to turn. I mean, it was technically, you but could it, see it. But, but it, Paul, but, it wasn't but, because it was at $20,000 to me. No, no, no. It was no, the technical. What that exponential rise shows you is um, you need to be getting out of this thing. It's a mania. Manias it, aren't difficult to spot, but it's extraordinarily difficult to tell someone who's involved in that mania to sell. It's um. It had an exponential rise all the way up. I mean, you could have said the same at a thousand dollars and five. No, and I, 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 no, I don't. That's the case if you look at the chart, actually. Well, I, I have looked at the chart, and that was the case because. Yeah. But what? But I, what, what I, I was talking. I, I, I present on this all the time, Paul, to clients, and and. and and I analyze it too professionally. That's that is what I do. And what I'm saying is, you can see an exponential rise in anything. Gold had an exponential rise, but what triggers the top is not actually following through that rise. It's actually the going sideways part, and that's what indicated the top in Bitcoin. And it, in many occasions, on the way up, and that's what indicated the top in gold. But my my point was really, or my question now was, what do you think of it at this point, if anything? Is there is there a similar kind of support line or level that you think it will be worth going back in or having a go um, in a similar way to gold? On Bitcoin? Yeah. Um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest. <laughs> it's not what you're expecting me to say. I, I, I'm not expecting um, you to I say was, anything, but I was, to be honest. I would, no, it's not from what I've said previously. You'll probably be, not be expecting me to say this. When we covered this off in a teleconference with clients, I think it was last month or the month before, and we were showing them all those charts, and they were all so similar. And we were actually not labeling them. We were just saying, "Which? what do you think this is? Uh, and we were just asking people out there, and we had no labels on. In fact, they were China, gold, uh, Bitcoin, and so on at different points in time. And uh, and then we sort of unveiled them, and um, and, 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 and it, was a quite, it was very interesting. To what we then analysed was how do you know when it's over? What kind of shape do you get in the correction? And actually, as I was these teleconferences are live that we do, and um, as I, as I was chatting through the chart for Bitcoin, and I said, and interestingly, oh, uh, that, that the Bitcoin correction seems to have been over um, a few months ago. Uh, I hastened then to add to everyone listening, this is not a recommendation to buy Bitcoin unless you actually understand it. Um, but those who do understand it might look at this and think, yeah, okay, that's that's another reason for me to buy. The The, the idea of actually understanding it, to me, is you don't necessarily have to understand it. You just have to understand where the support is and, and a good risk-reward trade. I think there's two separate things. I mean, you might... You, you have traders who have no idea where Switzerland is, but can trade dollar Swiss very well. And and it's yeah. the same with this stuff. It's just like, well, it, look, it's going on. I don't know what's going on with rhodium. I don't know what you'd use it for other than catalytic converters, but it's in a screaming uptrend. And therefore, momentum says you should buy it. And technically, yeah. it looks like you should buy it. So Bitcoin has been going down a lot. It's found a bit of support. I don't know if it's going to hold here. It still looks a bit weak to me, but we may have seen the low. I think it's got to do a bit more work to prove that we've hit a low, but regardless of whether you actually understand it as a 
as a product or and and then it's like what we were saying at the top of the show you can separate a view of whether there's going to be a recession or not as to whether the stock market's going to go down uh, i think this is the same thing whether you whether you think it's a good thing or bad thing is kind of irrelevant whether as to whether you think it's an opportunity to make money by buying it and and just by buying it is it's not necessarily how you should look at it either because there's great opportunities in in shorting the market and making the, making money as the market goes down um but it but it is um it is interesting um with with something like these cryptocurrencies as to whether we're going to have more than one or whether one is just going to dominate in the same way that we've seen with tech companies i just wonder yeah. whether you had a broader view about that as well well as the mania in bitcoin unfolded one thing that seemed obvious to me was governments weren't going to let it dominate in the way which its fan club thought it would and that as soon as governments started making clear that they weren't going to let Bitcoin take over the world, um, uh, Bitcoin was was bound to um, fall away. Um, and, and it did. As soon as governments started being a bit more negative, it was obvious, the risks were obvious there. Um, Where were you seeing that? That's, it. That's interesting, because I, I thought that they would have done that right at the beginning, but it seemed to be that... That they I think they didn't were just save late it. to the game, Paul, weren't they, yeah. in terms of recognising what the risk might be to to their control of um, economies through currencies. But what have they actually done to to, to show their negativity towards it? Um, I, I, I think it was more the, the mood music and some of the things that were being said rather than specific action. Because I think the best way for them to, to get rid of it, as it were, would be just to compete with it and, you know, create a an, an official cryptocurrency of each and every country, which is a view that you know it wouldn't cost them anything to create it, and yeah, yeah. it could it could live in parallel. Yeah. Um, and therefore, why would you hold Bitcoin when you could have hold an official one, or they could even make it that you've got to hold an official one and and no longer trade in other and in, in other cryptocurrencies? Yeah. Um, no, I, it, I I don't I really don't know if I'm mm, honest. No, no, uh, neither do I. I don't think anybody does really. I think it's no. but it's just trying to kind of work out the answer to that question is a, is a lot of money basically it either means bitcoin goes to zero or it goes to a hundred thousand as some people think it will yeah um but i'll i'll you know for, for, for my for my account and for clients i mean we will just stick to things that we we understand because i think it's the understand in the sense of feel more comfortable with as well i think that's a key issue there is a behavioral issue there coming back to your point um and um you know i'll i'll, I'll invest into say you know scottish and, and, and southern en energy or certain tech small caps because i can see momentum but i also have a sense of an understanding which makes me feel a bit more comfortable making those investments and, and that's where unless i was doing uh, day trading on that stuff uh, which i have done in the past but never you know pre pre uh, uh, Bitcoin and the like, um, I, I, I wouldn't really get involved in that kind of thing right now, if I'm honest. That, that makes perfect sense because, you know, I think one of the things that you've got to hand to Warren Buffett is, and Charlie Munger, is whenever there was a downturn, and I've, you know, I've got this from, from Tim, basically, whenever there was a downturn, um, you know, they were completely unfazed by it. And they were saying, well, this is, this is a long-term investment and therefore we've done our research and that's why we're holding it like this um the stock market what's the quote the stock market is the only place that 
uh, everyone goes to sell when everything goes on sale, when, which, if you look at it rationally, yeah, yeah. actually makes sense. So yeah. I think you're absolutely right. If you buy Bitcoin but not really believe in it, then there is a very good chance that a small correction could shake you out of it. And let's face yeah. it, there's a huge amount of volatility. So you may as well invest in something that you're, you're comfortable with. Indeed, uh, yeah, I think and, so. And investment style with which you're comfortable with as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, it all comes down to that, really. And that's what we talk about with our self-directed investors um, an awful lot. I mean, some are really comfortable just focusing on three, you know, they may have a few million pounds, but they'll only be in, 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 in three or four funds. And, and others will say, well, they've got 30, but they've only got 100,000 pounds. I say, well, but that's ridiculous because you can't track those. And they say, well, how many should you have? I say, well, how many you should have is how many you can actually actively track and um, and also how many you're comfortable with. So some of those people were really comfortable having three or four funds and they were really good at selecting funds too. So nothing nothing wrong with that, but it would have scared a lot of other self-directed investors witless to have that degree of concentration risk. I'm just interested in asking how, if, if a self-directed investor came to you and said, oh, I, I'd like to actually invest in gold, how would I do that? Would you just put them onto a, a, a fund that does that? Or, or would you say, well, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily think that's a good idea, but, here's, but this is how you would do it, giving a little bit of colour to, you know, to, to, to your view? It would depend what, why they wanted to buy it, I suppose. It was it something they literally wanted to put under the bed, and I'd say, well, go, go to a gold bullion dealer. Right, right. Um, if, on the other hand, they um, they said, I, I believe I should be going buying gold because, I mean, I might have a debate with them, and then if they still wanted to buy it, uh, just highlight some of the funds, which would, for example, enable them to buy gold mining shares or, 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 or an ETF, which... Um, through a couple of curves and that allows them to buy direct gold, go buy gold directly. Depend what they wanted. I mean, there's there's all sorts of ways to buy it, aren't there? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I was just. I mean, just... when 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 sentiment is very poor, we tend to say to people buy gold mining shares, and we've been playing that game very successfully for the last few years, um, buying buying gold mining shares over short periods when sentiment is very depressed. Done that what, with great success. What's your read on the sentiment at the moment? You, do you think um, it's, it's too frothy? In it has to be at an extreme for us to buy, and we're not really playing the downside on it because in in funds we can't we can't really express that. Right. Would would Brian? Would you not accept though that there are many institutional investors, the vast majority of institutional investors, if not private investors, but certainly at the institutional level, that don't own any gold at all at the moment? So it's 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 unlikely to be in frothy territory if it's a an asset that's almost exclusively unowned. Yeah. Well, the way we look at whether there's froth or not is, is really just looking at the sentiment indicators on gold. And there's some there's some great sentiment indicators. From and would that, be, would that be things like moving averages, that kind of thing? No, there, there are actually ones published in the States. The, the, in the States, they have this. And you, you know this as well, Paul. But there's so much more good information comes out on a regular basis on all sorts of things, including sentiment around sectors and who's trading and who's not trading and so on. Yeah. It's commitment of traders, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And there are a couple of others as well. And um, and on, so on gold, it's always really obvious when when uh, it's at extremes, um, up or up or down. Uh, so we're, we're, we're at the top end at the moment. And w when it comes off sharply, we, we may look to play again in terms of buying those gold mining uh, 
stocks. I wanted to ask a question about Neil Woodford and, and, and analysis of the fund, but I don't know whether that, that would be too... Um, Amusing. I don't know. <laughs> well, no, I, I, I don't know whether whether you'd want to go there. Yeah, yeah, I'm happy to go. I've been going there for donkey's years. Oh, brilliant. Okay, F- fantastic. So so tell, t- tell us about the warning signs that, that you could potentially see that other people couldn't have seen or didn't see. Well, we did see them and we publicised them regularly, but the media chose not to print them. Um, so in 2013, we, we highlighted that this is before, this is when he was leaving Invesco, but we didn't know about the new house being set up. And, um, and the press are contacting us every week on, on fund-orientated stuff. And I said at the time that... Um, for example, people had been walking from the um, his Invesco funds for the prior sort of 24 months or so. Um, th- so they'd been selling it. They'd been selling it down, which which I thought was quite interesting. But it wasn't uh, so surprising when you looked at the performance in the period before he left. It wasn't actually very good. So if you were someone like us buying funds and you buy funds that have momentum, you wouldn't have been anywhere near that Neil Woodford fund in the two years prior to um, when it was um, when he left. Um, and we never buy new funds. Um, and so when then the following year, when it was announced he was setting up his new fund, we said, well, what, on the one hand, why why would you buy a new fund? But, you know, it's that whole thing again about our fund managers skillful or lucky. Um, we want to buy a fund that has a has a track record, and has, whether he's whether that fund manager is skillful or lucky has actually shown that he can he can do X or Y thing. Well, Neil hadn't done X or Y thing in his prior two years, the last two years at Invesco Perpetual, so we saw no reason to suddenly think that he would be able to do that with his new fund launch, with the exception that we said that. But we know what we know from experience is that. When any new fund is launched, when it's got a blank bit of paper and cash, you can expect it to outperform in the subsequent 12 to 18 months, which is kind of a no-brainer if you've got cash. It's much more difficult to do that when you've got a whole load of stuff in your in an existing fund. And sure enough, in the first 18, 24 months, he outperformed. Um, and and uh, I mean, it wasn't an extraordinary amount, but nonetheless, it was there. And then it all began to go tits up and, and, and year after year we reviewed it and said, you, well, not only should you not have bought it, but you should be selling. And every year we did that, if not twice a year. Um, and then what did we get? Where are we now? We're 2019 still. So summer last year, 2018, it was then much more obvious and public that he had a whole load of problems with liquidity. And this was all in the press. And you know, it wasn't a secret at all. And it wasn't a secret that people like Jupiter, their multi-asset people, were selling out, as were others. And it was just, it was so obvious. And and uh, and I don't get why the regulators weren't on, on top of this like a rash. And why also Woodford would, and his team weren't on top of it like a rash. A rash. And the compliance people who should have been working internally on it weren't, weren't on it like a rash. It was obvious. Had the, had the price actually started to react at that point? Because it seemed to all unfold in a downtrend very quickly. Well, it, um, no, it had been it had been performing horribly for so 2014, 2016, for about uh, three years. Right, but that but the actual down the big downtrend in the fund just happened. I think that 
that happened over say I don't I haven't got a chart in front of me but it yeah. from memory it, that that downdraft was as the realization was kicking in from more and more people who come into your 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 point of view that that all happened very quickly but at the point that you're talking about there yeah. I, I'm going to have to go back and have a look at a chart to see how the market was reacting because you were saying it, it was all out there, but whether the price yeah. itself was reacting to it is, I guess, yeah. another matter because things yeah. can, things can just like hold in that in that space where everyone can sort of see something, but the the, the price does obviously yeah. the majority just don't believe it and it yeah. and it doesn't well, the, react. Well, the thing the thing with the equity income fund, which was the unit trust, was that. It was only ever priced off the, the value of the underlying assets. So, whereas with his investment trust, of course, that could be being sold down, and the price would reflect the number of people selling rather than the value of the underlying assets. So, the point about the unit trust is that the performance had been poor for um, quite a while, and that did begin to open up. Um, right. And then with the um, on the investment trust side, you can get a sharper reaction just because people are selling rather than necessarily because the underlying assets are going down themselves. So it's kind of two different things there, depending on whether we're looking at the unit trust or the investment trust. But nonetheless, all the, there was sufficient information out there for everyone, including the regulators and Ken County Council. Um, uh, oh, and Hargreaves Lansdowne. Uh, there was more than enough information for everyone out there to have been nowhere near it. So how how do people get your research? Do they have to? Is there a subscription, or do they do they register? And how how does that work? Um, it's just a monthly subscription for direct investors um, on Fund Expert. So if they go there, it's it's a, it's, a very, it's remarkably cheap because I would say that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Brian, you might also want to mention the book, Clueless. What Clueless? Oh yeah, Clueless the book. Um, so yeah, Clueless the book that was published Christmas before last. This is your this is your book. This was my book. Yeah, fantastic. Which is, um, which is about the um, it's about funds and it's about it, it's about the fund management industry. Where did it all come from? What went wrong? Um, how you can get it right? Um, and, and how you as a self directed investor can can actually be vastly more effective at uh, at selecting at selecting funds. And we put lots of evidence in there as well. Funnily enough, it was written Christmas before last, and there was a ch- chapter on how you can beat Neil Woodford. Um, <laughs> and, and, I'm, and, and in fact, because of that, I'm almost certainly going to have to do a second edition soon because it's so dated. Um, but we're, we're, you know, illustrating, you know, and, and I had to start off the chapter by saying, look, I haven't got anything against this bloke. Um, you know, as they said in The Godfather, this is business, not personal. Um, you just got to look at the numbers. Excellent, excellent. So, so do you have a media? I mean, you've given us so many great books. Um, so I have another one. You have another one. So this will go be on. our these, the media picks. Tim, is that all right? Absolutely, go for it. Yeah. Go for it. So this so, this could be yeah. your media pick if that's right, Brian. So, yeah. So don't forget major recessions by Christopher Dow. Brilliant. No one can talk about recessions until they've read that book. Um, right. And then the psychology of the stock market. It's a free book written in nineteen. It was free now in 1920, mm. 1912. Just Google it. You can download the PDF. Um, you've got Graham and Growth, uh, Graham or Growth, the Bailey Gifford article by James Anderson, which is brilliant. Uh, it's brilliant because you really end up arguing with yourself as you're reading it. I can hear Tim arguing with himself as he's reading it. And um, and then do you know the thing which we haven't touched on 
today at all other than obliquely cyber issues, cyber risk. Well, if you I want to talk it, more about that, please, please do. Everyone has to get a sense of what cyber risks really are and the risk particularly of cyber war. The first cyber war was in 2009 and almost no one realises they've got to get the DVD today. It's brilliant Sunday viewing. Download it today. Don't rent it. Buy it because you're going to want to watch it more than once. Zero days. Okay. And it's a film about the Stuxnet virus, which was put together um, by the US and the Israelis to undermine the Iranian nuclear facilities um, in 2007 to, to, to say, to, uh, 2009. And it's an absolutely brilliant film taking you through all of that and helping you understand so much of what's going on out there at the moment when they're talking about things like Huawei and so on. Uh, if you really want to understand the cyber risks and the cyber war risks, you have to have to have to look at Zero Days, the DVD. Buy it today. Great, it's a that, great DVD. Fantastic! What's the brilliant recommendations? Really look forward to those. Thank you so much, Tim. What have you got for us this week? I've got a very brief one. Um, I'm going to recommend the Jeroboam's Christmas Sales Book. Um, basically, I, this is the the London Wine Merchant. And as I've discovered on uh, mentioned on mentioned on previous previous podcasts, uh, this is this 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 message could almost be sponsored by Deliveroo or Deliver Booze, Deliver Booze as I prefer to call it. And uh, Jared Bams has been providing some fine fine deliveries over recent weeks as we sort of gear up for the Christmas season. And the uh, the Christmas cheers with Jared Bams um, Christmas wine leaflet is is just a pleasure to behold. Uh, some rather lovely illustrations by a gentleman by the name of Stephen Shand and some features and uh, basically you can probably guess what I've been spending most of my time for the last uh, doing for the last uh, for the last few weeks so <gasps> we, can we get a link to that or do you have to actually physically get the the uh, it's, it's, it's a rather rather glossy thing uh, I'll see if I can find a link for the, from their website but uh, if anybody from Jeroboam's happens to be listening then we are looking for a sponsor even as we speak <laughs> brilliant that's um, brilliant so um, my one is, I talked about the documentary, The Game Changers. and oh, loved it, yeah. Yeah, and then, they, I don't know if you heard about the, um, the, the guy who did the rebuttal. Uh, his name's Chris Cresser, and he said, you've watched, there's a Medium article that says, you've yeah. watched Game Changers, now read this. Yeah. After reading that, you go, oh my God, you know, this is, this is actually not the way to go, and he just kind of refutes everything in in the documentary. So you go game changer, not game changer, um, which is as far as I'd got on the last podcast. But hat tip, <laughs> hat tip to my uh, to a, a, a long term listener, Lee Shannon. So thank you for this. He put me onto the Joe Rogan um, podcast that has both of these guys going head to head and it's fantastic so it's a really long one it's like three hours 40 minutes oh, but they're it, both head to head paul are they yes yes so they're both arguing the case on both sides it gets really technical because they start talking yeah, yeah. about stuff that I, I guess most people just don't understand you know um some elements of food nutrition and stuff that's that you just have to have a you know, you have to really have de dedicated your life to it to understand. But, but you can about. try these things out yourself, and and they're really interesting. To if you know your own body quite well, it's quite interesting to try the different things mentioned in Game Changer. Though, isn't yeah. it? I don't know if you've done that, but no, I, I haven't. Have. I, I haven't. Have. But I've I tried it because I I I because I'm getting old, so I need all the help I can 
I can get when I do my training or my sports. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm much, I'm much more conscious probably of my body than a younger person who could probably eat, eat a kebab every night and still run a marathon with ease under three hours, you know. Yeah. Oh, Brian, you ha- happen just to have identified en passant the other potential sponsor, which is uh, German Donner Kebab trademark so we're we're, we're covering a lot of ground here today we are indeed so it's the joe rogan experience episode 1393 you can get it it's probably best to watch it on youtube because they do show a lot of slides but i to be personally i listen to it on on uh on my iphone but if you you it's probably best to watch the the uh Basically, it's, again, it's sort of like it's like a it's like a plot twist again. You know, it's like yeah. a really good mystery where you think he's done it and it changes and it changes again. So, uh, I think in the interest of the full debate about the subject and how important it is to to think about what you're putting in your body, you know, you've got to get as much research as in the same way as when you're investing your money. Um, so, that I think that's a really important thing to look at. And uh, if you haven't seen the Game Changers documentary, it's worth a watch regardless. And I, I take your view, Brian, that you may as well just try some of these things go, anyway yeah. to yeah. see how you respond. Because I think at the end of the day, there was a there was a brilliant documentary that the BBC did. I can't remember who did it now, but um, they they were moved. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I can't remember the presenter, but it was um, it basically said that was moving towards the idea that everybody is different, you know, physiologically, which is easy for you to say. That's easy for me to say. I knew you were going to say it. This time I'm going to say it. Physiologically. Yeah, indeed. Celebrating. Absolutely. So so everybody's different. So so some people might actually thrive off eating ice cream and chocolate, whereas for for someone else it it might might kill them. And so the idea that there's one diet for everybody – is 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 not is not correct anyway. It's just not. I mean, take alcohol for example. You know, you you can have a little bit and 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 get liver disease, and or you could just drink like a fish and have absolutely no effect. It's it just depends on your own body. So I think the future lies with people taking individual tests to see what their body responds to. What and the price bo- and the price of those tests is really is really falling dramatically, isn't it? Oh, that kind yeah. of personalized medicine. I mean, it's incredible. If you if you look at how much it costs to sequence uh, the DNA, uh, you know, the genome, um, it was about a billion dollars in two thousand, and now you can get it done for probably about two hundred and fifty dollars. I mean, that that just tells you how far we've come with this sort of research. So. It, and there's there's obviously a lot lot further to go, but I think that's in the same way that you tailor a portfolio to your own individual needs. I think diet will increasingly become personalised, but it's still interesting. Um, and it's the hard thing about all of this. And again, it comes down to investing as well. Is is the previous studies? It's like previous studies and how they've been conducted. It's so difficult to get long term data on this because. Yeah. You know, you've got to get someone to say eat meat solely for all their life and then see what happens, get lots of people to do it and then take out all the extraneous factors that could have affected their life anyway and and then work it out on that basis because short-term data does not run into, you know, you oh. can't extrapolate it. So you know, if, it, you're smoke, if you're smoking, it, it, it's not doing anything to you in the short term. It doesn't mean it's not going to kill you in the long term. The, the interesting thing I find is that if you're really interested in doing it uh, uh, to, your, to yourself, you know, trying these different things, I find I get feedback within a small number of days with with changing something in my diet. Yes. Uh, it, and it's so interesting to, to try those different things out. 
Yes, I, th- I think in the end, it's a balance. And taking always... your point, it's that we're all different too, and the, um, and we need to find out what's right for us. And you can you just find out by doing it. Exactly, test it on yourself. One of the questions that neither of them asked each other, which I was really like saying, why, why don't you just tell us what you actually personally eat? And it's, <laughs> it's like, but nobody actually asked that question. It's like, well, isn't that the most obvious thing? It's like what you're doing yourself is is like the skin in the game thing. But, and, but any- and, and on that, Paul, could I just add one thing in? You know, when we when we launched Fund Expert a small number of years ago, we then started doing live teleconferences, and I realised really early on that the typical question which came through every month was, but what are you doing? Right. And you know, one of the most marvellous things I found that, 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 that then came out of setting up Fund Expert is how my own investing is so much better now because I am put under the spotlight every month by the people listening into those live teleconferences. It's Brilliant. been uh, It's been great for me in that way. Keeps you honest, basically. Absolutely. Keeps, keep, and focused, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Excellent. Well, Brian... It has been an absolute pleasure. I love to hear the other side of arguments. So I think it's really important not just to just to take one side, to hear both, because that's the way you learn things. So I really appreciate your strong views. And so Tim's thank never you. going to take my calls again. Well, no, Tim. <laughs> you're, you're already dead to me, Brian. <laughs> Brian who? Yeah. But it's been absolutely fantastic. If, if somebody wanted it follow you on Twitter or, or email you. I know we've got your fund. Remind us your, your website and the your fund, other ways to get contacted. Contact you. Fundexpert.co.uk and uh, people can email through. They just go to the site and email through and one of the team, if they say it's for Brian, one of the team will pass it directly through to me. Brilliant. And do you, you don't do Twittering, I'm guessing? I I don't because I, I, I just, I end up doing a Tim, I'm afraid. Uh, and we all know what doing a Tim is. Yes. <laughs> that that may be an actionable comment, right? <laughs> oh dear. No, I and, and it becomes a distraction and uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, brilliant. Well look, thank you so much for coming on the show. We've I know I say it a lot, but you've definitely got to come back because we, we wanna hear we definitely got to hear what you think in 2020. So yeah. um, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, really appreciate it. Thanks, thank Tim. You. Thank Thanks, you so Brian. much. Appreciate it. Bye. Bye. Thank you, Tim. As always. Pleasure. And thank you so much for being a listener. We really do appreciate it. And we'll catch you next time. All the best. See you soon. Bye. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.